Hey there, I'm uh, recording this in my living room with the dryer going off in the background. Uh, just a, uh, a quick little introduction to um, what you're about to hear. It's um, I was invited on a uh, onto a kind of a video podcast called Freedom Hub, where um, I guess one of the hosts had seen an article I had written for the Foundation for Economic Education, also known as Fee. And the article was about um, an episode of The Office um, that I thought was relevant to libertarian concerns. Anyway, give the presentation, and uh, I'm sharing the audio here. Uh, the video is also, also available, and considering it, it is a, a, a video presentation, uh, you might prefer to check it out that way. Uh, go to uh, cantusfirmus.com uh, and watch the video. Uh, I think they have it hosted on Rumble. Uh, which is uh, which is very on point for <laughs> for libertarians, um, and you'll hear uh, things I uh, certain you know questions and, and points where I'm uh, disagreeing with uh, questioners here and there. Uh, but it was a uh, it was a fun uh, fun fun engagement, and um, hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Hoppe is not necessarily saying that those are the only two options. I think he's he's looking at two two uh, different phenomena, two different types of government that have emerged. He's suggesting that uh, his his own kind of version of anarcho-capitalism is the better alternative. Um, and I think what you're you're suggesting is, is uh, you know, um, the constitutional republic is is uh, preferable. Um, I, I've got some issues with Hoppe, but I guess I'd say I lean a little bit more toward to where, where he's saying because I think his critiques of that. Um, the sort of constitutional republic that we've created um, that I think is so fragile uh, and leads to where we are now, but not just doesn't just lead to where we are now, but even it's in its uh, inception was, I think, very problematic uh, for reasons that Lysander Spooner, I think, articulates really well in um, his book, No Treason. Um, to me, I, I, I guess what I would say is not necessarily anarcho-capitalism, but a voluntary society is is, is the preference. And for, for different reasons. So you talk about how um, you, you want to give a very small role to government to regulate the market because essentially it's better when these choices are distributed, they're not centralized. Welcome everybody to this episode of Freedom Hub's Working Group. We're pretty excited that you're here today. We got a great topic as usual. I'm going to have Charles do the honors on a, a bit of an introduction on that. But in the short term, let me give you a quick tour of where we're at on the site, just so you can kind of get a handle if you're kind of new here, or just as a reminder. When you land on our regular site, your-mp.com, and you hover over Media Hub, you can click on that button. It takes you over to our media page. We've also got marketplace and some other areas you'll definitely want to explore. But for purposes of today, there's the two shows we do, a nice description of each. When you scroll down, usually we'll show you who's coming up, but we're getting ready to do our Christmas and New Year's break. And then more importantly, below that is where the channels are. So excluding YouTube, because we don't use them that much anymore, you'll find this video first of the week on all three of these other channels, BitChute, Brighton, and Rumble. And if you do us a favor, I would suggest going to all those channels and subscribe. Even if Rumble's like your favorite channel, it helps us for trending and so on if you subscribe on BitChute and Brighton as well. So we would encourage that. So today, like I said, we have a really very good guest. So this is where I'm going to let Charles jump in here a little bit and give us a little rundown here. 
because as you can see, we've got Cody Cook with us today. So Charles, why don't you do the honors? I will do. And if I can share my screen. All right, hold on a second. There you go. Um, this is a libertarian lawyer named Dick Clark from Nebraska who presented on a Christian libertarian nation uh, three years ago from the, from the Libertarian Christian Institute. And it was a, a great presentation uh, because it, it allowed me to write in the promo about the chapter of Samuels in the um, Bible, which everyone should know. And you learn about it when you become a libertarian. Because basically, the Israelites um, were complaining to Yahweh that they didn't have a king. And God responded to them, what are you, a bunch of idiots? All the king's going to do is impress your boys in the army and uh, eat out your, your, your crops, your profits. So it's just going to be big government. And the Israelites insisted on uh, having the king nonetheless because... Everyone else has one. And with that, I'll stop sharing to um, uh, our previous writer from the, from the Institute because Cody Cook also writes for the Libertarian Christian Institute. And he's a theology student. He, he writes for other uh, organs as well. And what really attracted me to today's topic was an article he wrote bringing together two fantastic things. One was the comedy series, The Office, which anyone who has a brain uh, loved or loves still, if you ever see the clips, they're still hilarious. And then uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe, a famous libertarian philosopher in the uh, lines of Murray Rothbard, whom a lot of my uh, former colleagues in the Beltwaitarian world at Cato despise uh, because he's not very woke. Um, and a lot of us have who came out of the Beltwaitarian world aren't as woke as we used to be and are more based in fans of Mises. And, you know, we like Trump just because, you know, he may be awful on some policies, you know, a spendthrift, protectionist, that kind of stuff. But some of us just love the chaos, uh, the, the uh, you know, finger in the spoke of the wheel, Um going after the deep state, even if it's just rhetorical, it's, it's better than nothing. And if we're going to have a populism, I think uh, the MAGA crowd needs to learn about Hoppe because he offered a better coherent uh, context for a populism that works better than protectionism. Um, I learned before uh, the show that Cody has a background in some film production. Maybe he'll mention that. Because uh, I think with the uh, use of Hoppy against the deep state, the great enemy, the globalist, uh, he may know more than he lets on. Uh, we we want to hear it. And with that, let's have Cody uh, bring us down memory lane to the office and tell us why Hoppy is so controversial, but oh, so important. Welcome, Cody. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, if uh, you're cool with it, I'll go ahead and share the screen because I've got a uh, PowerPoint. And so the one I want to share is that one. So let me set up the slideshow. And I'll switch these over. Uh, does that look okay? Can everybody see the uh, see the slideshow screen well? Yep, looks good. 
good. Great. Okay, so we, we played around with the sound a little bit, making sure that we could hear everything. So hopefully we're good to go there. Let me make sure I've got the uh, proper things checked. Okay, I think we're good. All right, so uh, the presentation uh, that I, at least the way I've got in the PowerPoint here is how NBC's The Office taught the dangers of democracy. And uh, we'll start with, uh, I've kind of been intro, but I'll just give it just a, a minute to go over a little bit of that too for me. So first off, uh, not to get too philosophical, but who am I and why am I here? Um, my name is Cody Cook. I'm a Christian anarchist, film buff, family man. I just finished a master's in uh, biblical studies at a school in Cincinnati, Ohio called God's Bible School that was founded by an eccentric Methodist who literally deeded the school to God, hence the name. There was actually a famous court case on this where it was determined that God actually could not own property. Uh, so I think it was put into a trust at that point. Uh, the psalmist uh, writes that uh, God uh, owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but according to the United States government, he doesn't own the hills. Uh, so I'm a contributor at the Libertarian Christian Institute. I've written books on uh, theology and Christian anarchism. I also occasionally blog and podcast at www.cantusfirmus.com. That's cantus-firmus.com. Um, I've also written for Reason, Mises Institute, uh, FEE, Foundation for Economic Education. One of the articles I wrote for FEE is called Office Politics, What a Popular Sitcom Can Teach Us About Raw Democracy, and is the basis for this conversation. Uh, I think what was being alluded to uh, there, um, but the video production thing was when I was in high school, I liked to make a conspiracy theory uh, uh, videos, and I did one mostly just kind of stealing clips from Alex Jones and uh, kind of reworking them and putting new narration and music on it. Uh, and uh, so one of those is actually shared on uh, Infowars.com. So that's one of my one of my claims to fame. Uh, so, um, yeah, so speaking more about The Office, uh, popular shows and movies can be a good way to explore big issues using familiar stories and characters, uh, which is why it can be kind of cool to, you know, do, do what I'm doing here. Uh, it can also be a good way for nerds who like talking about philosophy to seem relevant and engage in a potential cash grab. Uh, as you can see here, some of the uh, some of the books, maybe you guys have seen some of these, The Office and Philosophy, The Matrix and Philosophy, you know, Parks and Rec and Philosophy, whatever. So as an anarchist nerd who's watched the entirety of this NBC show, uh, The Office, way too many times, I noticed a plot line in two season eight episodes that I think is particularly relevant to libertarians. So let's see if you caught what I caught. So I'll give you a little bit of background. Season eight episode, Get the Girl. And there's also a clip from the next episode, or actually two episodes later as well. Um, branch manager Andy Bernard, I have a little click here, so I've got him labeled, abandons his post to chase after the office receptionist and his love interest, Aaron Hannon. And this decision couldn't have come at a worse time because Nellie Bertram, an underqualified and recently fired employee at corporate, has made her way to Scranton looking to weasel her way into a new job. Seeing Andy's office unoccupied, she reasons... If the seat is open, the job is open. At first, none of Dunder Mifflin Scranton's employees are willing to recognize Nellie as a legitimate authority. After all, Andy is the rightfully instituted manager at Dunder Mifflin Scranton. How then could Nellie possibly get away with taking what she has no historical claim to? Her plan is a shrewd one. She invites each employee to participate in a performance review. This is her first day, mind you, so she knows nothing about almost any of the employees to review them. But that isn't the point of this exercise. Hidden in these performance reviews is a social contract. Any employee willing to be evaluated by her, thus agreeing to her authority, will get a raise for giving their consent. Sound familiar? <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so um, this is political demagoguery at its finest, and it works. And here's a clip, and hopefully everybody can hear this all right. Phyllis. Nellie, I'm sorry, but I don't feel comfortable being evaluated by someone I don't know. Oh, oh, okay, I understand. Let me show you how these are going to go. Dwight. I refuse to be judged by someone that I do not respect. I lost respect for you in Florida. If it was up to me, you would be in jail forever. Dwight, I have completed your evaluation. You're getting a raise. What? Dwight, you carry this company on your massive shoulders. You are our Atlas. And for that, do you not think you deserve a raise? There's no limit to what I think I deserve. Then you accept it? 5%, no less. Absolutely not. 7%. 6%, I know my worth. Raise isn't real. Money isn't real ever since we got off the gold standard. So, Phyllis, now you know the rules of the game. Do you care to have a go? I'm fairly certain you're going to like it. Phyllis? Pam? All right, was everybody able to see and hear that okay? I can't see any faces, so if somebody wants to break in, <laughs> tell me if that yep. was that okay? Saw it. Good, good. Okay, good. And it was good, audible and everything. Uh, also, I love the little reference to the gold standard there. So it, it's uh, <laughs> another little nod to libertarians. I, I wonder, I've actually wondered if this episode, uh, and we'll get into it, but I've also, I've wondered if the, this episode was uh, written by somebody who was familiar with some of these arguments. I did find out that the guy who, uh, the head writer on this, um, I think his father was uh, maybe a lobbyist or something. So there could be a connection there or, or, or in government some way. So though not discussed in this episode, there's a running thread in this in this whole show and that's the need to cut corners and maximize profits to keep the company from going under. But Nellie, like all good politicians, isn't concerned about balancing the budget. All she needs to do is give the people what they want in exchange for power. Let the next guy worry about balancing the budget. Uh, Nellie's own self-assessment at the end of this episode is one that I think many libertarians would imagine an honest politician making of him or herself. I grew up poor. I had little formal education, no real skills, I don't work especially hard, and most of my ideas are either unoriginal or total crap. And yet, I walked right into a job for which I was ill-prepared, ill-suited, and somebody else already had, and I got it. If you ask me, that's the American dream right there. Anything can happen to anyone. It's just random. You see at the end there where the, the name tag, uh, the nameplate said Andy Bernard, and she <laughs> replaced parts of it with her name to make it work. So the analogy of Nellie to a politician isn't a flippant comparison that I'm making here. The controversial libertarian economist and political theorist Hans Hermann Hoppe has argued in his book, Democracy, the God that Failed, that this is precisely how a democracy operates. Though our contemporary political story would have it that our representative democracy was a genuine improvement on the rule of kings that came before, Hoppe disagrees. He writes, monarchical government is privately owned government, which promotes future oriented orientedness and concern for capital values and economic calculation by the government ruler. Democratic government is publicly owned government, which leads to present orientedness and a disregard or neglect of capital values and government rulers. The transition from monarchy to democracy is civilization, sorry, civilizational decline. So in other words, liberal democracy is not only worse than the libertarian rights-based society that Hoppe advocates, it's worse even than monarchy. 
It's a system where politicians promise to wastefully redistribute resources that don't belong to them in exchange for votes. Unlike a king who owns all of the resources of his domain, a politician is a mere caretaker who is, quote, always under the pressure of political competition from others seeking to replace him, end quote. As a result, and this is also Hoppe, quote, the counterproductive effects of income and wealth redistribution are of little concern to him. Uh, a politician is incentivized to trade precious resources for votes. This not only leads to bad economic outcomes, but according to Hoppe, it also tends to have a decadent effect on the culture, so that it uh, begins to be marked by what Hoppe calls present-orientedness, opportunism, and hedonism, end quote. And so you sort of see here that the incentives are, are very different for, you know, using your resources versus using what you sort of is out there in the ether that belongs to the community, right? You don't, you don't feel like you're wasting something that belongs to you if you're, uh, you know, trying to get something that, you know, from the government. So looking at the office through the lens of Hoppe, we might conclude that even Michael Scott, uh, who, if you've seen the show, you'll remember he was Scranton's incompetent manager monarch from previous seasons who wasted company resources on things like blow up birthday parties from for himself, couldn't do as much damage as the more democratic Nellie, who gained authority by offering gratuitous amounts of precious company resources to supporters in order to consolidate power. The danger of such waste is that when resources run out, as they do much faster when distributed to so many, everyone suffers for it. Whether democracy or monarchy is ultimately a more decadent system in the long run can, of course, be debated. Even a cursory look at the history of kings and other autocrats makes it obvious that few are known for their frugality. Uh, but Hoppe's primary contribution in this area is not that he made monarchy look better, but that he shed light on a fatal flaw of democracy, its strong tendency to create warped incentives which lead to destructive outcomes. He writes, somewhat curmudgeonly, but nonetheless accurately, uh, quote, if the right to vote were expanded to seven-year-olds, its policies would most definitely reflect the legitimate concerns of children to have adequate and equal access to free French fries, lemonade, and videos, end quote. So get off my lawn, right? Uh, as the next clip uh, illustrates. I'm going to count down from five, and if you are not out of my office, I'm going to dock your pay $100. Five. Four. You can't dock my pay. I am your boss. Three, two, one. Congratulations, you just lost $100. <laughs> really? Angela? Dock Andy's pay $100. On it! Great. Um, five, four, three, two, one. Angela, please dock Nellie's pay $100. She responding? Mm. Angela? Do you want to go again? Angela! Let's go again. Five, four. <laughs> oh, she's counting three, again. Look two, out. One. Angela! Two hundred dollars! Seriously, Angela? I know what. Let's go. Ten thousand dollars. <laughs> Five. You're just saying four, numbers. It's meaningless. Three. It's literally. Like All right. So this is a, I think, a pretty great illustration of one unfortunate reality of democracy. It doesn't incentivize us to necessarily want an orderly society or the rule of law or even justice, 
but free goodies. <laughs> and uh, you don't necessarily get those uh, in monarchies. Well, with the exception of uh, those who are close to power who get the uh, the handouts in order to uh, protect the king's uh, the king's authority. Can I um just uh, say for those who are fans, if you're a fan, you notice Dwight's face. He always catches the attention of the camera, just nodding. <laughs> He's such a deranged psychopath. <laughs> That's good. Good catch. Um, does he does he represent the people in this scenario? The uh, the, the <laughs> um the so, um the the dog. If you had like pigs, dogs, and sheep, right? He he's the dog. He'll he'll quickly enforce the order. There you, you know, go. The, the lap dog of the king. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there, there, it's, it'd be interesting to think about kind of how, how Dwight sort of fits into this kind of political uh, kind of if you're if you were to chart him, because on the one hand, he's really he really believes in authority and power and wants to be close to it and support it. But he also sometimes espouses kind of like almost libertarianish and uh, you know capitalist ideas. I don't know if that makes him like maybe um, uh, or what do they call it? Like a, a paleo conservative, maybe maybe that would be where Dwight would fit. I'm not sure. Or just a real person with uh, with nuance, maybe. So it's not maybe. black and white with him. <laughs> maybe so. <laughs> I don't know. So, um, so yeah, Nelly, uh, Nelly's scheme, I think, highlights something else that we know, but don't often want to admit about authority, and that it's it's completely made up. So Nelly admits that her position as manager is only real so long as everyone is willing to say that it is. If even one person says that they don't believe, she fears that, like Tinkerbell. The idea of Nellie, the manager, will die, as is illustrated in this clip. Jim, have you ever heard of a character named Tinkerbell? Yes. I'm Tinkerbell. Oh. Mm -hmm. I'm a magical fairy who floated into your office to bring a little bit of magic into your lives, to give you all raises. And we are grateful. But here's the thing about Tinkerbell, Jim. Everyone has to believe in her. Well, she doesn't exist. And she dies. She dies. Now, who here believes in Tinkerbell? Let's see it. Show of hands. I do. Come on, everyone. All right, guys, stop. I already spent the money. All right. Come on, Jim, you're killing her. We believe. <laughs> All right. So power is a myth that requires the belief of the masses to sustain itself. When we cede the power over our own lives to others, whether to kings or popularly elected caretakers, we give them the opportunity to destroy. Thus, the issue of which form government should take essentially comes down to one question. How would you rather be screwed? That's what she said. Uh, for those who <laughs> watched The Office, you'll get that joke. But um, so that is essentially uh, the presentation that I uh, came here to give. I can oh, do the stop sharing. <laughs> excellent, Cody. Thanks for the memories. Um, folks, if you want to click the raise hand icon, uh, ask your questions. Um, that uh, you, you deserve to get the government, uh, you get to choose the government that's going to screw you. That's That's the same quote from Samuels I mentioned earlier for Dick Clark's presentation. You know, the Israelites wanted a, a king. God said that he's just going to impress your kids in the army and and put your daughters uh, wherever. So king, judges, doesn't matter if it seems government's going to screw you. Right. 
Um, what, what do you think about what do you think about the, the controversy of Hoppe? Um, I mean, for a lot of you know Rothbardian libertarians like myself, listening to Hoppe or reading him is is, is incredible. But he triggers so many Beltwaitarians uh, and those who really are offended by uh, the sort of the the MAGA movement. What do you think? Yeah. Do, do you see that too? Um, he does. And, you know, when I read Democracy, the God that Failed, um, I, I had, you know, and maybe I'm, um, I guess earlier you kind of talked about the woke based dichotomy. Maybe I'm a slightly woke libertarian because there were times where I was like, man, this was really good. I really like what he's saying. And then there are other times where I was like, oh, I don't know about that. Um, some, some of, some of his thoughts on, um, immigration, he talks about, um, you know, trying maybe building ex uh, communities where homosexuals are excluded and things like that. And I thought, eh. um, so there's definitely a, um, you know, we talked, I mentioned earlier, kind of like a paleo kind of emphasis that's going on there for me. Um, I'm okay with using a word like, uh, anarcho-capitalist of myself. But one thing I've noticed is a lot of anarcho-capitalists, Hoppe especially, um, Rothbard too, I think, um, I think focuses more on the privatization aspect of that, which I think privatization is fine and good. Um, but I think my interest is more in creating a voluntary society less than a private society. So in the, in the, the small city where I live, um, I, I'm not offended by the idea of people sort of saying we have, you know, we collectively are going to have public roads and public parks, but we're not going to force you to pay for them. You know, there'll, there'll be use, you know, some kind of a way to uh, fund that that's voluntary. Uh, whereas I think someone like Rothbard or Hoppe want everything privatized. And Hoppe, to some extent, democracy, the God that failed, the, the, his vision for society is one where uh, almost like towns are, are owned by private individuals uh, who make the rules. And you can sort of see, you can sort of imagine how that sort of, how that, on as that scales, that becomes essentially like a monarchy, right? You know, so the idea that, you know, we're going to give up, um, you know, somebody is able to control a certain amount of territory, then they expand that territory. And before long, they make all the rules and all the, and the, whole, and the entire entirety of the territory. Um, and, and, you know, so if, if monarchy had started with privatization, would that make it okay? Or, you know, I, I do see some, some, some flaws in, in, I think where he's going with that. And so for me, I think focusing on building a voluntary society is better than focusing on building a privatized society. Although I also think privatization is a good thing. I'll, um, I'll mention, I'll find, we had a free cities presentation a year ago that got lots of views. Uh, so there is interest, interest in that, especially as the uh, centralizers impose smart cities on us right. uh, with no informed consent around the wireless mesh and the digital gulag coming. Right, um, yes. Yeah, if Elon Musk owned Seattle, would it be a better place to live? I mean, maybe maybe it would be than what we've currently got. And I think that's part of like when I when I read Rothbard or something, I think okay, well, this like privatized world probably would be better than what we've got right now. Um, but 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 I also see certain flaws in thinking that everything has to be privatized. There's nothing that we could say this is you know this is our road that we sort of as a community we sort of are are entitled to use, <laughs> um, so long as it's not you know paid for by forced uh forced taxes so is that is that more of a localism versus a privatization um maybe emphasis? i i think for me it's just leaving a room open for th that not everything has to be um um built on a profit scheme that you know profits are fine there's nothing wrong with profit you know people engage in trade and that's a good thing and everybody benefits from it 
but does everything have to be prof, um, profitized? I don't know. I don't know if I believe that. We've had some uh, localism presentations. Jeff Dice from Mises, mm-hmm. um, one of the LP candidates from a few years ago, presented on localism. He ran the veteran Iraq Veterans Against War. Uh, right. I forget his name, but he was big on localism. Um, mm-hmm. Jeff, go ahead. Make some good sense. Or no, that's that's the reality of it. Because like a park that's not profitable there's nothing to sell per se yeah who's somebody has to run it so does that person become that little monarch so to speak so yeah privatization makes sense in terms of like the uh um excuse me one sec i got a mute i got a noise thing i gotta shut off uh mr ford why don't you jump in here for a minute thank you um just on a big picture standpoint then i'll offer a little bit of drill down you you present what I think is a false dichotomy, and that is the choices that we have in government are monarchy or democracy. And the answer is none of the above. Neither one works for all the reasons that we've talked about. Uh, if our friend uh, owns Seattle, he may be a very just ruler over, over Seattle. But what comes next? What came after Louis the Fourteenth, Louis the Sixteenth? Uh, the, the monarchy fails for that. People as chattel property to a monarch is a failed mechanism. It does not work, has never worked, is a complete failure. Democracy was rejected by our founding fathers for a similar reason. Majority rule means majority tyranny, bred in circuses, followed by pure tyranny, which is what we now have in this country. Uh, The founding fathers said, wait a minute, we're going to do something different. We're going to do something unique. We're going to take God's word. We're going to take his Bible. We're going to take the Declaration of Independence, and we're going to create a constitution, and the constitution will be the framework of something called a republic, where government represents people. The states check and balance against the power of a national government, a monarchy that's created over time through bureaucracies and power and, and all the rest because they retain individual sovereignty. That was the framework. It was also the genesis of the comment that Benjamin Franklin said to the people who expected us to be a constitutional monarchy with Washington as the monarch. He said, we've we've given you a republic, not a monarchy. They rejected the idea of the monarchy. Well, George Washington did as well for the very reasons that I've stated. So that's it from the big picture. The big picture is there's no discussion about whether a monarchy is better than a democracy. They're both tyranny by alternative means. They're both tyrannies. They're just different flavors. The only hope is for a republic, a representative government. The problem with a republic is that the people must maintain it and the people must be moral. And for a republic to work, to have the unalienable rights coming from a god, the god has to be Judeo and Christian. When people reject that, they lose the republic. They become a democracy. Then they become a bread and circus, and then they become chattel property under a very extreme and ultimately unsuccessful totalitarian police state, which is about what we have in this country today. I just point that out as the big picture. Okay, As far as ownership goes, the market is a miserable way to allocate goods and services. Nobody can argue that. I'm not going to argue that. The problem is, as Churchill would say, the rest are so much worse. They're so much worse. Government can't do anything. I'll give you a brief example, and then I'll turn it back over to you all. South Florida University is building a football stadium. 
University of Hawaii is building a football stadium. The two schools are state-run, state-bureaucrats, state-authorized, state state-funded, blah, 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 blah. And, and you know how long it's going to take them to build a silly little football stadium? Five years. Texas A&M did it with private funding. They took their stadium down to the ground and in 47 weeks built a new stadium. Government can do nothing. There are some functions government must do. Defense on a limited basis. Commerce on a limited basis, checked and balanced. That's the whole functioning of a republic. As far as market goes, government's role is to be the umpire, not a participant. Government does not, it is just not ever going to be able to do anything beyond being an umpire. And they're not very good at doing that and frequently fail. The market has to be a large number of buyers and sellers. There has to be Competition because of that, with nobody controlling supply, demand, or price, none of which is present anywhere in the United States today. So I'll, I'll stop right there. Um, if, if, yeah, if I could maybe just respond quickly. Um, Hoppe is not necessarily saying that those are the only two options. I think he's he's looking at two two uh, different phenomena, two different types of government that have emerged. He's suggesting that uh, his his own kind of version of anarcho-capitalism is the better alternative um and i think what you're you're suggesting is uh you know um constitutional republic is is uh preferable um I, i've got some issues with hoppa but i guess i'd say i lean a little bit more toward to where, where he's saying because i think his critiques of that um the sort of constitutional republic that we've created um that i think is so fragile uh and leads to where we are now but not just doesn't just lead to where we are now but even it's in its um, inception was i think very problematic uh for reasons that lysander spooner i think articulates really well in um his book no treason um to me i i i, I guess what i would say is not necessarily anarcho-capitalism but a voluntary society is 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 the preference and for for different reasons so you talk about how um you, you want to give a very small role to government to regulate the market because Essentially, it's better when these choices are distributed. They're not centralized. Um, I think that's true just in general, <laughs> you know. So um, I I think, um, you know, a status to somebody who says, well, you know, we should centralize as much as possible to make sure everything's ran the way we want it to be. Um, an anarchist to somebody who says, uh, no, actually, I think it would be better if everything was voluntary because that works better all the time. And then um, somebody who's a minarchist says, well, mostly I, I agree with that, but there are some exceptions where I think we need to centralize it. Um, and so I think there's, there's, you know, maybe practically speaking, you could argue that's necessary, but I, I do think there's at least a lack of consistency in saying that it's always bad when we centralize it, but sometimes we have to, and sometimes it's better. What do you think about the... Um building on your point about the inevitable collapse of republics what about all those quotes and discussions about how the the time preference problem with republics or democracy attracts psychopaths who know they have a limited time to get what's theirs before they get out of government right or, you know kind of kind of like Mencken's quote that elections are advanced auctions on stolen goods um you want to volunteer society but it, you know, even in a local government solution, which could occur under voluntarism, right, or, or localism, yeah, um, yeah. you're going to attract psychopaths who want to get their pelf from the stolen income taxes, right, or whatever right. taxes, to get what's theirs. It's almost it's almost inescapable. 
this whole time preference problem with any kind of government wherever located. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, you know Hoppe's point about kind of how um, democracy encourages you know profligate spending, <laughs> wasteful spending. I mean, if, if you think about a situation, so let's say that you know you are in charge of a community and you have to dole out your own property as you see fit to manage that community and its resources. That's one thing. And you're going to probably be sort of stingy with it because you want to be very careful about giving up, giving away too much. But if, if you are essentially given the key to a storehouse that doesn't belong to you and people are willing to give you things, if you open the storehouse for them, you're going to be much more generous with what's in that storehouse. Um, and I think that that's really the critique of democracy is that, you know, people are trying to get some short-term benefit. They're trying to get some income, some connections, some ability to maybe lobby in the next few years. And so they they don't have to be in for very long. All they all they have to do is go in, manage everybody's resources, give them away to the right people, and they're guaranteed uh, the career that they want. Uh, and then they can leave, and they're done. You know, hopefully that hopefully they're dead before everything comes crashing down. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I think that's a that that's I think really what Hoppe's critique is there, and I think it's a I think it's a legitimate critique. Um, and yet he also does, I think, go some ways to demonstrate that even some of the most uh, um, wasteful uh, kings as far as spending and, and use of resources is concerned uh, haven't done as badly as democracies have done. And one last follow-up. In his book, doesn't he uh, admit, well, yeah, some rulers are profligate and evil, um, but they come to a bad end in that if you look in the details of European history, there were a lot of kings, especially before the nation-state period, the big kings, that weren't that bad on average. So it's not like the founders were wrong to reject monarchy. They probably were, were right. But, you know, comparing the two, uh, there is room to say democracy has not outplayed the monarch on average in terms of spending or rights for the ruled. Yeah, I mean, spending for sure, rights is maybe a more debatable point um, because, you know, one of the major issues with with monarchy is that when the king owns all the land, there's no upward mobility. You know, you don't have any ability to sort of say, well, this is I'll start with this land that I own and I'll sort of build from that. You're sort of stuck in the place that the king wants you to be in. On the other hand, you know, you look at all these wars and things that went on. For the most part, the peasants didn't have to worry about a net. They were really kind of uninvolved. Uh, whereas, you know, with democracy, it's it's the peasants who get conscripted, <laughs> not the peasants, but, you know, the people who, who are struggling or poor or whatever. Those are the people who are most likely to be sent to die. Um, so to some extent, the king minded his own business, not you know, a little bit more than maybe a, a politician would. Wow. <laughs> Charles? I, I see that Charles has a rejoinder there. Yeah, I, I want to go back to the uh, picture you said about the uh, the warehouse and the and accessing the warehouse and, and getting getting access to distribute it out for in exchange for power, et cetera. The problem is not any of that. So the, the, that you're talking about the result. The problem is, is that that warehouse exists in the first place. What does that warehouse represent? That's a redistribution by force through government of wealth that belongs to who? The people that created it. Right. And it's not being used. You're not creating capital. You're not creating a better lifestyle. You're not creating a bigger economy. That's the problem. Uh, I don't, and I just on a personal level now, shut up. I don't understand why anybody here on this topic is defending a monarchy or a democracy. You're insane. I'm sorry. 
That's insanity. You want to repeat the same failed process over and over again with some minor adjustments and expect a better outcome. Let me be very clear. There is only going to be one outcome. Totalitarian states that do not remain in place because it is not a sustainable system. A republic may be a difficult system, and it is, and it does require moral people, which we don't have anymore, as a as a as a foundation. That's why you can't export a republic to other nations, and we don't have any morality left in this country to speak of. And as a result, our republic has failed. It's become a democracy, and is now rapidly becoming a police state. That is what democracies become. They become police states. What happened with the Weimar Republic? The Weimar Republic became Nazi Germany. Okay. What happened to the republic or the, the democracy that was created by the wonderful socialists in Russia in 1917 in March? The Bolsheviks turned it into a police state nine months later. Democracy is simply the way for totalitarian police states to be created. There is really, in the end, no difference between a monarchy or a democracy. They both equal totalitarian police states. I'm sorry, I do not wish to be chattel property to a German-born queen like most of England is. I choose not to do that. That was one of the foundations. The grantor of my rights is the God, the creator of this universe, not government, not a human being. Both democracies and monarchies say something completely different. Yeah, I, I guess my, my what I would point out though is that we started with the republic and got here, and maybe you could you could point out to point to the fact that the constitution essentially doesn't respect individual rights; it expect it respects state rights. The constitution is about limiting the federal government so that states can sort of run however they would like, with, with very few limitations. Um, and so maybe that's maybe that's part of the problem. Uh, but um, as for what you said, you talking about the storehouse not, not shouldn't exist. Um, I like the uh, this dichotomy that uh, sociologist uh, Franz Oppenheimer used. That he said there's there's essentially two ways for acquiring wealth: the economic means, which is work and trade, and the political means, which is stealing it. <laughs> and so I, I like that. That's how he, he uh, summarizes uh, theft: the political means of acquiring. Well, my response to that is he's you know psychology is a, is a false science and it's about as true as witchcraft. That said, and with that prejudice put out there, just so you know where I'm coming from. Uh, when you steal wealth, there will soon be no wealth to steal. Right. When you remove the incentive for the development of capital, there will be no new capital. They, and, and we're seeing that in the United States today. We're seeing that around the world today. Uh, again, a, a republic is very difficult to keep because the people themselves have to be moral. They have to have an absolute standard. Huh. Good luck with that in this country today. Now, there's the problem. It's not that the system or the process is weak or doesn't work, or that it's not a grantor of individual rights, you have to look at the U.S. Constitution in conjunction with the Declaration of Independence. What does it say? The two go together. The, and that's just the way it is. We've gone away from that. We don't have it anymore. And unfortunately, we'll never get it back. Um, speak to that, if you don't mind, as a theology graduate, uh, Cody, and a writer for a libertarian institute that has Christian in its name. Um, I mean, there's been founders and philosophers, all of us respect that argue what comes first, liberty or virtue, right? Lord Acton, uh, John Adams, et cetera, Benjamin Franklin. Um, how do you see about, what do you, what do you think about restoring virtue to help this voluntarist society that you want? 
or establishing volunteerism to bring back virtue? Yeah, that's 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 a, that's a big question. Um, and, and one I don't necessarily know if I have a, a, a great answer for. Um, one thing I will say is that by distributing the choices that we make that affect all of us um, down to the individual, I think that we are able to create a society where um, if the virtues are not perfect, <laughs> um, we can still live in a pretty good society. Um, so, you know, if you, you know, if, if we live in a world there where 50% of the people have the wrong uh, moral perspective, but they still respect the individual rights of their neighbor uh, to have the right moral perspective, I think we're doing a lot better than in a society uh, where you have a state that does use force, but 95% of the people are good. Does that make sense? Yeah, that that's gets to, you know, what is the moral standard we're seeking? Is it one where uh, you're, you're behaving uh, like the uh, stereotypical 1950s family man, or you're just following Jefferson's admonition to um, pursue your yeah. happiness and, or, or alert, uh, or read sixties quote, anything that's peaceful, right. as long as you're not harming others property yeah. rights. Yeah, yeah, and I argue with a lot of Christian nationalists, and and what they want is a a society where the state is very much involved in regulating behavior, and their hope is that by doing that, everybody will be virtuous, and that then of course everybody will be happy and and prosperous and and free to some extent, um, and and I do think ultimately they've got it kind of backwards. <laughs> I'd I'd rather live in a free society with some people who I don't agree with than a uh, totalitarian society where everybody claims to be on the same page. And what is that moral standard? Is it basically anything that's peaceful as long as not infringing on others' property rights? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's there, there's a there's a, a book I've written about this a little bit. In a couple of books I wrote, "Fight the Powers" and uh, "What Belongs to Caesar." But essentially, um, I think the standard, if, if you go back to like the Old Testament, um, Israel is held to the law of Moses, whereas the nations are judged by what we might call natural law. You know, they're not, you know, the nations aren't expected to keep the Sabbath. They're not going to be judged if they don't keep the Sabbath, but they will be judged if they don't respect the the rights to life and, and property and liberty of their neighbors. Um, and so I think that that's, that's really the basis on which I think from a biblical perspective, a, a society this side of Jesus's coming should be built. Where does that come from in the Bible, the natural law? Because I know it, it emanates from there a bit. It, it goes way back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, man so <laughs> so you gotta look at the when you're looking at the old testament that's where it's coming from it's coming from right. the book of leviticus and also there's you know you got the 10 commandments that most people follow so you need to look at those things and you know going back to discussion and i don't mean to cut in on this but um you know the bill of rights was set up as as the rights of the people but also how far government can come can go and that thing, I think we we fail to realize, or maybe we do, and we haven't. It hasn't come to discussion. Charles has done a good job of kind of uh, moving the discussion along concerning being a republic, and the reason why we, we became a republic, and it, and it's the old adage where Benjamin Franklin was asked, "What government?" of a woman who asked him the question, "What government are you giving us?" And he, he said, "We're giving you a republic if you can keep it." And we're mm -hmm. seeing that because the government has subjugated. The, the Constitution, and it's gone beyond what the Constitution has basically delegated its rights to. It's not the Constitution wasn't necessarily written for the individual. It was written in terms of the keep the government in check. 
First Amendment, Second Amendment, Third Amendment, Fourth Amendment. So when you look at those, the government that we currently has, it probably started somewhere during the um, Woodward Wilson era, if I, I would I, I would I would think going forward, the government has subjugated the Constitution and has put us down 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 this path of heading. Well, as far as I'm concerned, we're in the fascist communist system right now. Whether you like it or not, that's where we're at. You know, I was preaching against this back when I started my church in the mid oh early 2000s, and I saw it coming. We're 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 actually um, it's going down the same route as Nazi Germany did back in the 1930s. And if the church would arise up, as Charles was is talking about in terms of righteous men, if righteous men were to stand up and come against it, then this we would not go down this route. But the problem is the church is weak. It doesn't have the moral standing anymore. And actually religion in and of itself doesn't have a moral standing anymore because it's 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 gone down the path of where Nazi Germany has gone and other civilizations who tried to go that, that have come before us that tried to put forth a type of government that would give the people its rights with certain boundaries for the government. Because that's our situation right now. We have people in the government who are corrupt. And I don't care if you're talking about the Democrats or the Republicans. So, you know, until we get a, a righteous people that will stand up in righteousness within our government, we're just going to go straight down the path of Nazi Germany. That's my two cents. Um, so, <laughs> maybe speaking real quick, it's like the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights was largely understood and interpreted by the Supreme Court in the early years as being... Um, protections from the federal government, not protections from the state government. And slowly over time, the Supreme Court has said, well, I guess you have a First Amendment right against against Ohio or Kentucky as well. And so in that sense, we've some individual rights have been arguably expanded, but largely what the, the system has been doing, the Supreme Court in particular, is they don't want to challenge the prerogatives, prerogatives of Congress to make laws. So generally speaking, the 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 the, the trend has been toward giving government more rights uh, to do what it wants to do as opposed to giving individuals more rights to do what it wants to do. But one thing I will say is, in one sense, we're slightly better than, than it was in the beginning, because at least we're acknowledging that you have a right to free speech from against Connecticut or California or Texas and not just against the federal government. Um, we've also, of course, you know, Got rid, gotten rid of the compromise on slavery that was built into the the uh, Bill of Rights, which I think is also, I mean, obviously a huge infringement on individual rights. And so, I think the Constitution is pointing us in the right direction from where the where they were at the time. But the the uh, critique of Lysander Spooner and mine as well is that it doesn't actually respect individual rights. It's not really built to do that. So in one sense, it gestures toward that, uh, but it's not it's not really it's not really built to do that. And and that maybe that's perhaps why it hasn't. Um, so, um, as for where, where we get natural law, um, so what I kind of had referenced was, so for example, if you read like Amos and the, uh, minor prophets, his critiques, uh, his, the judgment that God is sending against Israel and Judah are different than the judgments that he would give against their pagan neighbors because he's holding them to a different standard. And that different standard is, you know, more or less what we would call today natural law. And uh, the 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 role of law or you know God's law in the Bible is kind of a complicated thing, because I think you have Eden, uh, which is one kind of law. Then you have the law of Moses, 
which includes the Ten Commandments, which is kind of a different kind of law. And then Jesus comes around and says, well, actually, the law of Moses was in, in, sense, in some senses inferior because it was sort of meant to regulate behavior. It didn't actually give a clear, you know, this is the standard that God actually wants you to live by and that Jesus is sort of coming to give that standard. Um, but I think uh, the Christian standard actually even goes farther, further than natural law, because whereas natural law, I think, is um, willing to countenance self-defense as a right, uh, Christians are encouraged to use nonviolence and and turn the other cheek. So that's a standard that's even higher than we would want to maybe hold our you know non-Christian neighbors to. Um, so anyway, so yes, na natural I think is something that is spoken of in different places in the Bible, but not maybe explicitly. But I think it's 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 implicit. So with all of your efforts, Cody, uh, what kind of society do you think we're heading towards? Uh, as you wrap up here, um, I, I think a lot of folks are a bit worried. Right. Some of these, uh, you know, global tyranny actions uh, facing us with carbon energy rationing footprints and medical compliance passports and cancel cancelable currency from central banks. Uh, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit chaotic right now. I think. It is, yeah, and, and and maybe it's maybe there just has to be a critical mass of people who who want to be left alone, and, and until that happens, I really don't, I'm not super hopeful about the direction that we're heading. Um, I think I think it can be reversed, or at least there can be ways to sort of separate ourselves out from it. But like at this point, um, as much as I would like to, I, I think every day and talk to my wife at least once once or twice a week about maybe we should just be Amish, just, just leave everything behind. Um, because it, it 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 is kind of scary, and I, I've got kids. You know, I'm raising my kids in this world, um, which is, you know, increasing power of the state, increasing dependence on technology that isn't necessarily always good. Um, and so, yeah, I, I I think we have to be able to to create an alternative that's attractive enough to bring enough people in. Because at this point, uh, you know, doing going Ted Kaczynski and, and building a cabin in the woods and not, not having electricity and, and, and water is only attractive for a very few a, a number of people. But there are a lot of people who would like to live in a freer society, but just aren't willing to go there. Um, so uh, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm hopeful that perhaps the market can provide a solution uh, as we move forward. But but we'll see. Now, as I wrote in the promo, uh, explicating popular uh, culture. I think represents a great way to build our movement. Uh, we had uh, Tom Fiery from Cato explicate uh, MASH. Um, we had uh, Shakespeare professor um, over there at the UVA talk about uh, Gilligan's Island. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Paul Cantor, that's his name. And he has a, a big book on teaching liberty via literature, which I think is a great way to expand um, knowledge of liberty because people like stories. What about you? I mean, have you looked at other stories or are you going to look at other stories in the future to keep doing this? Because I think it's a great way to teach. It's easier than teaching uh, Hoppe, perhaps. Right. I, I, I thought about writing an article based on an episode of Leave it to Beaver I saw where he's engaging in um, um, uh, price gouging because he's selling water during a water shortage. Uh, <laughs> um, because I think that that was, but I, I don't know if enough people remember Leave It to Beaver to make that a worthwhile enterprise. Um, I remember that episode. Yeah, it's a great episode. Um, and, and he's not really doing anything wrong, by the way. Um, so, but, um, one thing I will say, uh, yeah, I'm definitely open to doing more th in the future. I've done, um, part of my podcast. I haven't done one of these in a while, but I've kind of got a sub series where I do, um, 
uh, it's called like at the movies where I, I bring in somebody to talk about a film from either a philosophical or a theological perspective. Um, so, you know, the, the matrix, uh, Woody Allen's crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, so, you know, the, all these, you know, different films that sort of touch on um, these issues in some way or another. Um, I do want to give a shout out to um, an author named Christopher Borer, who wrote a book called the ethics of anarcho-capitalism, just not just speaking more broadly about stories because he wrote this really fascinating book. It sounds like it would be kind of boring in one sense, but it's essentially a, um, if, you, if you've read much philosophy, you'll know that the illustrations that are used to kind of bring home a point are always the parts that stick with you and, and help kind of cement the idea. And what essentially this book is, it's one long illustration. Um, and so he, it's this idea that you sort of land on this desert island and you have someone else who's there and you cooperate. And then a third person shows up and they're not cooperative. And it's sort of how to build like a, a kind of a free voluntary society uh, based on these sort of principles. Um, and so uh, and it's also in the second person. So it's, you know, you do this, you do that, whatever. Um, but but I, I love it because it finds a way to sort of make these ideas really seem personal and practical uh, and draw you in in a way that you can identify with it. Yeah, Dr. Strange loves somebody to comment. That's one I'd love to do as a, 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 a podcast to discuss in the future. Um but yeah. Oh, and uh, I do want to say uh, I, I appreciate those who are who are disagreeing with me at sharing their perspectives. I think it makes it a lot more a lot more of a fun and engaging conversation. For sure. So, so, Cody, what's the best way for people to follow or get in touch with you? The best way would be if, if I change my website to something that was easier to spell. Um, it's Cantus dash C-A-N-T-U-S. Then there's a dash. F-I-F-I-R-M-U-S dot com, Cantus Firmus. It's a Latin term that I borrowed from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's letters and papers from prison, and I should change it, but that's what it is right now. <laughs> we had a really Bonhoeffer good. presentation from a religious guy that died a couple of years ago. Oh. Um, I forget his name. I'll, <laughs> I'll find that, maybe put, put it in the notes. Uh, well, thanks so much. Jeff, final word? Mm. No, that was very good. I mean, you know, the sad reality is with this dismal path we've been on, you now you start to look at who's willing to go into government. And that becomes like a death spiral mentality because not only just, you know, problematic or kind of criminal types, that's who just is gravitates to it. Everybody else says, no, I'll just start a real business. Like you said, Kaczynski style, I want to escape. I just got to ignore it. But the problem is they're going to come after you regardless of whether you pay attention or not. Yeah. So Unless there's enough people. Work yeah, unless there's enough yeah, people. Yeah, that's what I say. Yeah. yeah. Like the uh, conversation yesterday, one of the blessings for this potentially yeah, shifting sure. gears is the COVID shutdowns. It woke a lot of people up that were fence sitters or not really paying attention enough. That might start giving us a little bit of that tipping point to the critical mass you're talking about. So yeah. keep slugging away. That's all you can do. We're all just doing our part to keep making everyone wake up. So it's it's great. So thanks for today. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I hope it was a fun, fun, uh, fun uh, episode for everybody.